My conversation today is with Benabel Wen, a practitioner of both Western and Taoist systems of magic, and the author of the Holistic Tarot and the Tao of Craft. Benabel's depth and scope of work and research and its synthesizing and holistic nature make her one of my go-to authorities on Taoist magic, history, and esoteric philosophy. Her unique perspective as a diligent and reliable researcher and experienced practitioner, as well as her intimate knowledge and understanding of the systems in which she practices, make Benabel a true fountain of resources for any practitioner wanting to learn about esoteric theory and practice in either Eastern or Western systems. Today, we spoke about her background growing up Taiwanese-American in upstate New York, the nature of qi, the many layers of esoteric Taoist texts, her forthcoming book on the Oracle of the Yi Ching, and much more. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, my pleasure, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually very excited to have you today because I am a fan. What? So, Why? Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, I grew up here uh, in, in in the states, and um, uh, for a little while, actually, for quite some time, I, I studied um, acupuncture and and traditional Chinese medicine, so not classical. But, um, and I've also been a practitioner of the Western esoteric traditions. So, um, obviously your work, uh, you know, holistic tarot, I think that was 2015 mm, Yeah. at this point, it's kind of a little bit of a modern classic and, uh, Tao of craft has just been something I've working through. Um, and it's, it's such a resource, not only because it goes through the particulars of the the, the Taoist practice um, and and fully fleshes it out and with as much detail as you would want, but it also informs the Western practice practice of talismanic uh, magic and sigil crafting. Because you know the thing that the gap that I see the disconnect in having studied energy work and meridian theory and uh, a little, little tiny smattering of, of Taoist cosmology. The disconnect is that in Western magic, typically we dance around, but we don't have this concept of chi. Mm. You know, we dance around. Really? You think so? I, I really, I, I think, you know, some people have fused this idea of, um, you know, this Eastern understanding of things like chi and prana and, and I things like I definitely know nothing about the Kabbalah for sure. So I definitely don't want to give the pretense of knowing anything, but I've heard people make the correlation between chi and, for example, ruach, right? Ruach. Yes, absolutely. But the thing is, you know, there's not any strict sort of utilization of ruach because mm. while ruach um, implies breath or air um, and has, again, like many of the other words that are sort of synonymous with it in the, the other traditions, it has an association with spirit. Typically in the Kabbalistic model, 
at least practical Kabbalism, you're thinking of it more in terms of the constituents of like a practitioner's psyche. Hmm. Yeah. So, so there's, de- that, there's definitely that there, but there's not much in the written stuff that it's really like fleshes Shen. it out. Because we have Shen, Qi, and Jing. And so Shen is like, for example, what's funny is now that we are in modern times, Shen became a word that we use to talk about consciousness and the psyche. But then, you know, the older word for it etymologically was spirit. Really? Or celestial spirit. Right. Yeah. That's the way they taught it uh, to me was that mm-hmm. um, Shen is is much more the consciousness of uh, of the person. So that's... Yeah. Uh, that's pretty interesting. So um, how do you define chi when people ask you to explain it? That's what I'm curious to know. <laughs> how do I define chi? Yeah. Um, so one thing is even in Taoist metaphysics, chi is even that as a broad strokes term, right? Because it is used to talk about in a very generic umbrella term, many different forms of life force that you might not be able to see with your physical eyes, but you can, a lot of people can definitely sense it, right? So there's that chi, um, but then like how that chi is characterized in very specific instances, then there are different names and different ways of characterizing chi. So in the broad strokes way, I would say chi is just the life force that is driving the movement of the physical bodies that is the correspondent to the life force behind that. So it's the underpinning force of nature that's giving us, that's making my hand move, that's making me speak to you, that's giving me my thoughts and ideas. And the reason we are having this conversation right now, at some underpinning level, it's that chi, that life force. Yeah. So I guess it it, it sounds like it's really broadly an animating principle. Yeah. And I'm also, I mean, because I've heard all in, in certain conversations and circles, they are having um, these discussions now in East Asia about chi and its interconnections with dark matter or dark energy. Mm. So that's a really new conversation that takes the concept of chi to a different level that obviously didn't exist before. Yeah, that's incredible. That's excellent. So, um, you know, I'm very excited. Uh, this is a great conversation uh, that I that I wanted to have for a really long time. There's not many people in my uh, circle that I can talk to about uh, Taoism and and things like uh, you know chi theory with. But before I get too excited, let me back up a little bit. Um, so, uh, would you mind telling maybe anybody who might be listening to this uh, and myself uh, a little bit about your background? Um, I'm Benabel. I grew up in upstate New York. I'm Taiwanese American. My mom is from a very small place outside of Tainan, which is the rural south of um, Taiwan. And it's really known that heartland area is really known for a very robust, um, you can say superstitious, but a very robust folk practice of um, traditional Chinese religion, Taoist magic, Taoist mysticism, um, forms of mediumship, fortune telling, all of that. And then when she came here, she she was just a housewife. But within the Taiwanese American community here in the U.S., she did feng shui, she did fortune telling, and then she found her own little niche of people who then did a lot of other practices in our basement. And that's what I, what I kind of grew up with, um, just seeing that experience. Um, who am I? That's pretty much it. Just a occultist slash lawyer who grew up here in the States, but has really close ties to Taiwan because of my parents. 
That's great. That's great. And I, um, I've been following your video series and I know that you had mentioned um, that uh, it was in the nineties that you got kind of involved with, or I think you made the distinction. You, you, you began to associate with uh, certain circles in the pagan community. Oh yeah, that's true. I think once, so I really took an intentional um, I in, very intentionally try to distance myself from Taoist magic and Taoist occultism, because when you're young, you just want to fit in, you want to assimilate. And there was such a, there was such a distant dissonance between this, you know, history and legacy and heritage that I had and these, these presumed realities. Like my mom wouldn't even, wouldn't even caveat these conversations with this is my religion, or this is my belief, or we believe. It, it was kind of a presumed reality that, you know, uh, you know, the late uncle so-and-so is in the room. It was a presumed reality that gods and demons existed and exorcisms were talked about as it was a real thing. Exorcism and going to the pediatrician were kind of like talked about hand in hand. And so parsing through that in upstate New York was something I really had to do in a very intentional way. But then I think, you know, your heart is where it is. And if whatever you, you know, believe in, it kind of follows you. So I thought that I was distancing myself from Taoist magic by going into Western occultism and the Western pagan communities. But then, you know, it's very similar. There's so much overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm from New York, too. I'm from downstate. Oh, what part? Uh, Long Island is where I grew up, but I, uh-huh. I lived I lived in Manhattan for a, a long time. Um, but uh, I kind of had a similar thing going on. Obviously, I was uh, my father's Greek, my mother's Italian, so I was Roman Catholic, and um, I had a similar situation. Uh, just uh, a lot of things taken for granted in a religious context that were kind of uh, I don't know they're lay metaphysical you know like it's like the laity talking about metaphysics which is it it just ends up being spooky um (laughs) and uh, same thing you know i i thought i was getting away from from that sort of thing but it does follow you because i think one of the things that gets impressed on on people who are exposed to spirituality uh, at a young age is some sort of connection at least it, it can happen you know a connection to that that other side of things. Um, and also I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a long, I guess, grimoire tradition in the, in the Western paganism that actually comes from, from, from Christian clergy, you know, a, a lot of that was written by them. Uh, but how, how do your, your Taoist upbringing and your uh, forays in, in Western uh, esoteric or pagan traditions, how do they meet now? Is there a practical sort of way that you 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 express these two very very unique and very interesting uh, combinations? I think one way they met that I'm wondering how I can untangle actually is um, you know I don't want to say scientific method but you know we are heavily influenced by a lot of the concepts and philosophies and approaches to reality that came out of the Enlightenment era. You know, that that concept of how we approach understanding and parsing through reality, how we um, talk about ideas even. And so, for example, the grimoire tradition, this idea of it's not true until you write it down or, or the importance of writing. And while there is has always been an emphasis on the importance of writing, for example, in talismatic magic in East Asian traditions, 
the grimoire tradition is not quite as strong, you know, and so for especially on the ground level, practical area, practical level, a lot of uh, practitioners, I, I just don't see them having uh, this grimoire tradition, and it's not really passed down. And when we say grimoire, Taoist grimoires, uh, we're often talking about like canons and scripture. And so it's a very complex, right? Like, is it a grimoire? Is it not? I don't know how to describe what we have in terms of Daozang or Taoist canons in the Eastern, Eastern traditions. So, um, and I think bringing in a lot of the, how I process information from a Western upbringing, I've applied to um, Eastern esoteric traditions. But then now I have, I'm in this stage where I wonder if I want to try to unpack that and go back to understanding oral traditions. You see a lot of problems arising actually because of you know, Western ideas of the, from the enlightenment being applied to Eastern oral traditions. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, a sticking point that permeates all kind of uh, metaphysical or magical endeavor. And um, I think recently I described it as sort of, and Eliphas Levy, if you're familiar with him, the French occultist, he, he said something kind of on the nose about this, but in his very um, ornamental way that he spoke and, and wrote, you know, asking someone for a sort of scientific proof of spirituality is like asking someone to speak in colors. It, the mm. domains, the domains can't really um, fully penetrate into each other uh, in, ter in terms of this underlying explanation. Um, you know, I mean, they're called the mysteries for a reason, right? And they have been for centuries. So um, I also find that it, there is a, a period of, I guess, re-education or, or divesting yourself of these ideas to whatever extent is possible for you at the time in order to allow yourself to experience the reality of magic, you know, because if you've got all these, these sort of uh, walls built up, these, these rational arguments against it, a priori, mm -hmm. it really hinders your ability to, to uh, experience it. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the things I do appreciate a lot about Western occultism, especially figures like Eliphas Levy, Crowley too, um, they they did have they had written expressions of appreciation for Eastern mysticism. They talk a lot about that. You know, Eliphas Levy in um, Transcendental Magic, he wrote about the trigrams of Fuxi. Well, Fohi he called it, but like <laughs> he, he wrote about the I Ching essentially. Yeah, the more I I um I learn about it. Because there is, there's this wall uh, in the, at least in my experience, I don't know that that's the case everywhere, but in the Western educational institutions, uh, which um, disseminate or, or train uh, ACU students, Qi is this very mystical thing and, and, and it kind of stops there. You know, uh, it, it's very rare that you'll get into uh, research about ghost points and, and, and sort of the, the, the mathematical metaphysics of the Bagua and all this stuff. And what I really enjoy is how in depth you cover all these things in your video series. Um, I kind of feel like I'm, I've been trying to do for Western occultism, what, what you're doing for esoteric Taoism. And uh, uh, sometimes I scratch my head. I'm like, wow, she makes me sound like a child. <laughs> no, <not at> all. <laughs> but um. Yeah, uh, it's it's been it's been pretty excellent to watch that, and I just want to take a minute actually and 
I can't recommend that video, your video series enough. It's just Benabel Wen on, on YouTube, correct? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to the point that you were just making, it's fascinating. One thing that I realized recently, you know, Huangdi Neijing, I think it's Yellow Emperor's um, Classic, inner canons. Yeah. It's something, I know it's pretty much um, a gospel text for acupuncture students and people in the West who are learning traditional Chinese medicine. But what I learned was their reading of it is only on that traditional Chinese medicine level, the um, a, a more, I guess, holistic clinical level. I don't want to use the word clinical too loosely, but yeah, it is that treatment level. But then that was really not the understanding I had of the text. I mean, I knew it was, of course, on traditional Chinese medicine, but I'd always known that every, so in Chinese, every word has multiple meanings. And so the understanding was you read the text on one level, which is about healing and the metaphysics of traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, how qi flows through the five movements. But then on another level, it's the best way I can actually use to describe it is the Akashic records. It's this idea of being having access through the five agents to an all-knowing source of knowledge and being able to um, use divination in a way that helps to diagnose um, and, and proceed with healing methods. But I never hear people in the West talk about that underlying layer of interpreting that particular text. Yeah. Yeah. I, I And one of the things that really has stuck out um, to me is, yeah, we have this, um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because it it kind of pulled us out of a lot of superstition to the point now where scientific vernacular is, is sort of reaching this, this, this return arc on the cycle of time towards the mystical and transcendental. So, you know, hopefully at, at some point they'll rejoin into their proper union, but um, we do have this uh, very nominalist um, Aristotelian Cartesian training that's just ingrained. It's just taken for granted in the West. And so what happens is it, it stunts symbolic thinking, right? I mean, you can't think on multiple levels. It has to be this or that. And, and uh, the brilliance behind studying something like, uh, like Chinese, even to the very superficial level that I did is that you learn that, wow, there are, there can be multiple layers to this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I find, you know, actually what's interesting is in the East, we do also have this new embedded culture of the scientific method and being more rational based. And that's brought on a lot by, you know, the cultural revolution and more recent turning turning points in, in socio geopolitics in, the, in Asia. But yeah, I mean, we are, I mean, to be fair, right? Asia is losing that as well. So it's not like a Western problem. I think it's a global, it's just like a human problem where we are moving more heavily into the realm of rationalism. But like you said, like you intuited, we've kind of reached a tipping point in the extreme, that end of rationalism that you do see that return or this cycle back to mysticism, especially in the new conversations physicists are having on, you know, yeah. quantum physics. I know people hate it when you talk about quantum physics and occultism, right? But you even see that in the scientific community, these conversations happening right now on quantum R states. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they, I think it's a perfect marriage, even if, even if, you know, uh, it's kind of murky and not everything fits together just yet. I think that that's um, a, a fusion that, that, that is worth attempting um, at this point, you know, because uh, 
we're, it's like, we're so close, but <laughs> I agree. I agree yeah. too. I think I, mean, I acknowledge we can be clunky with our vernacular when we're talking about, you know, that intersection between occultism and quantum physics. Of course, we're clunky with the way we talk about it, but having those conversations, making those mistakes now is really important. Right, right. And it really, at the end of the day, um, at least I think for practitioners, people who who have a, a gnosis and experience of this stuff, uh, you know, we understand how similar the two really are at the core. Yeah, a lot of people might make the mistake that we're doing sort of Harry Potter movie magics type of stuff, <laughs> but it's really not. If anything, I think the, the heart of everything is revolving toward consciousness, you know, um, in a way that is it transcends uh, sort of this individualized human self-awareness. It's, it's the consciousness that permeates everything. Um, you know, it's, it's very important. That's at the, I think that's at the heart of the quantum uh, problem right now. And, and also uh, with magic. Yeah. And I think right now I'm still trying to grapple and understand the Taoist metaphysical philosophy on this, because I don't think I fully understand it, but the basic premise of it is that space time is not linear. And this is something that's old as hat in, in Taoist mysticism. It's not linear. It's a spiral. And because it's this spiraling cycle, um, it hits on multiple dimensional levels at the same time. And we can only experience one level at any given time because of the limitations of human perception, but it's causing all sorts of things happening at different levels at the exact moment we're experiencing it. So we experience it in a linear way, but it's actually a spiral hitting multi-dimensions. Um, it kind of, I mean, I keep going back to the Kabbalah only because I had a very, very recent personal conversation with a friend who, with a friend who was a practitioner, but like, it's that idea, right, of the Sephiroth, the 10 Sephiroth hitting on four dimensions of the four Kabbalistic worlds. There's something to it. And so many different traditions are coming to the same idea, of course, using the language of their own culture, but they're still coming to the same fundamental ideas. I just wonder why that's not worth exploring. Yeah. Yeah, there is a treasure trove of of almost every every cultural uh, background or heritage. You know, they they've left us with with um, symbol systems. Um, if anything, that that we can, uh, if we really dig in and and learn to experience them, uh, I think that we can sort of bring them back and and restore them and, and and put them to good use. But one of the interesting things about for me about uh, you know, Taoism and the, and the energy work practices of Qigong and, and, and things of that sort is they do give you an experiential component. If you stick with them long enough, you begin to feel Qi and it's uh, it's quite a remarkable, remarkable thing. And um, I'm sure that there are people in the Western esoteric paradigm who have had similar experiences, but I would say uh, far and away, the, the, the Taoist practices as I guess potentially diluted as they are having come down to us in the West are incredible, incredible for that. The, the, the tradition of practice that's all that was also passed on is uh, invaluable. My mom gave me a great metaphor. Um, I can't, but now I can't remember what it's called. This is from the nineties. Remember those like, those like groovy maps, like it's all these different colors and then you look yeah. into it. Some people can see things, other people can't. Right. And then, so my mom, you know, it was popular in the nineties. So my mom actually used that to explain something to me once. So, you know, a lot, a lot of us, most of us cannot see the thing, you know, that picture, that three-dimensional picture in that groovy color scheme. And then, however, once someone points it out to you, 
you can't unsee it, right? You absolutely see it in there. And so I think certain cultures, for example, if you grow up knowing to see certain things, you'll never unsee it from your reality because it is there. It's always been there. It's just that some people, the most of us who only look at that groovy picture, you can't see the three-dimensional image embedded into it because you don't have, like people haven't shown it to you. You, you know, you, you don't have sort of like the skill, the basic skill sets innate in you to see it because you weren't brought up with that. So that was a great metaphor for, for example, experiencing chi. Yeah, that's an excellent metaphor. Way to go, mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know a few uh, practitioners of of Taoist, I guess you would call it internal alchemy, um, or at least the version that is available to us here in the mountains in North Carolina. <laughs> but um, I get differing opinions when I, 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 I uh, broach the subject of Taoist magic, mm. you know, um, some people think that are of the opinion that there, there is not a similar concept uh, in at least maybe modern China uh, as we have now in the West to, to magic and things like that. And I don't know that that's a hundred percent true, but the operative words there being, I don't know. So <laughs> I was wondering if, you know, if if you could expound on that a little bit, you know. I guess it depends on how you're defining Taoist magic. If you're talking about a ritualistic, a heavily ritualized prop, you know, process with lots of, you know, bells and whistles, you know, you have like in a more superficial way of expressing it, you have to have like this particular tool made on this day when this moon is up with these the stars aligned in a certain way and facing east, right? Like, and then and how you're supposed to create these tools and how the tools are used and drawing particular diagrams, um, spirit diagrams on the ground and pacing through the diagrams on the ground in a specific way to invoke a particular type of divine being or spirit, either in a world that's more celestial or a world that we might equate to demonic or an underworld of some kind or a hungry ghost. Absolutely. That's a very vibrant practice. I think one thing is, um, it depends on where you go. You see it more heavily prevalent in Southeast Asia now. Um, the Chinese diasporic communities in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and places where like, I don't want to get into politics, but like places where communism hasn't touched, you know, like, and I just don't want to get go there. But like, there is a reality to that point, right. you know, Absolutely. And you see, um, you see a lot of, you know, very, very vibrant shamanic practices in Japan as well. So places that are untouched by a particular evolution of thinking and philosophy that diverges very extremely from these original folk practices. Um, yeah, it's still very vibrant. You know, that, that was actually the culture that I grew up in because I grew up untouched by the geopolitics of Asia. Yes, I I, I remember in one of your videos, you had mentioned about uh, not necessarily um, uh, being the, the go-to in, in China to refer to yourself or identify yourself as a, as a Taoist in terms of religion um, rather than Buddhism. And it was such a funny visual uh, that you had that you had given because people will apparently Im immediately think of somebody like wearing a sorcerer's hat and doing yeah. strange mudras and dances and things like that. I think um, that is a reality. It's, I mean, if you don't know what you're looking at, that's, that's what it looks like. You know, I'm, I'll be fair. Yeah. I mean, I do that. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We have to have a, a sense of humor about what we do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, <clears throat> so uh, you've got a new book coming out. Has it come out yet or is it is it on its way? It's on its way. I mean, it's written. It's been written for a while now. So, it, I mean, you know how as the author, it feels weird, right? Yeah. So it's um, it's coming out June 2023. Beautiful. And that's on the uh, I Ching. Yeah, it's on the I Ching, but I like to talk about how the original intention, what I wanted to do before I started writing was I wanted to write, I guess I'll use the word grimoire, but I wanted to write a book on Taoist magical practices and mystical practices. And then I was like, how am I going to do that? And I decided to do that through the framework of the I Ching, but then also combine it with my translations and annotations of the I Ching and really go in and do the research into Chinese texts on how these um, how these passages were actually interpreted in Asia, not, you know, sort of untouched by Wilhelm, for example, Wilhelm and like, to be fair. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating, actually. Um, again, you were, I think you were talking about uh, sort of the mathematical metaphysics of, mm -hmm. of the, the whole schema uh, of the, the trigrams and, and um, the low shoe square, which is, mm -hmm. Mind-blowing, right? Because we have that in the Western tradition. It's the square of Saturn. And um, it, it's just, uh, that's something that I'm extremely interested in. How, how much of that can, can we look forward to in, uh, in your new book? Not that much. Um, the Luo Shu is the, one of the, prem I mean, it's the mathematical premise of the I Ching. And it's also a part of the Ten Wings. So that part of it is in there because it has to be. But um, not anything more beyond the video that I made um, or, yeah, that's not too much because I still focus on the 64 hexagrams. Mm. And uh, I'm assuming you have uh, an I Ching practice. You do it uh, daily or? I Ching practice. Um, I don't do it daily because of my relationship with the I Ching. You know, mm. for me, you know, I read it pretty routinely, but I read it the way people would read scripture. It's a meditation. So the text is to help you cultivate um, a transcendental understanding of the world. So there is, it's a book of wisdom. And so I treat it like a book of wisdom where I'm reading it more for, more as a spiritual practice, as a form of cultivation, you know, to pure, you know, purify your chi in another way of speaking. In terms of divination, for me personally, how I approach it is I can be a little bit more irreverent and fun with, for example, the tarot, right? But for the I Ching, I just feel like for me, um, at this point in my life, I won't go to the I Ching for divination unless it's a very serious question. And then I take it very seriously. And it's a whole ritualized process for going to the I Ching for answers. Yeah. Yeah, I I came up in the the system of well, I learned esotericism in, in and magic really in in the system of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which is still very much alive and well here. And that's exactly um, what we do. Uh, that's the way we learn divination is uh, ritual, ritualized divination. And one of the things that was so interesting to me in the uh, the Tao of Craft was. Uh, the idea of the the charging, the sort of consecration ritual that had to take place, um, which is so antithetical to so much uh, chaos magic that's out there right now. And, and that's not to be disparaging about it because there's a component of that stuff that is very effective. But uh, it's just a whole nother level when you incorporate ritual into something um, and, and you begin to sort of stabilize and 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 add controls to your sort of uh 
uh, divinatory experiment. That's actually a very important point or principle in, I, I guess, the Taoist traditions and East Asian, East Asian traditions, to be completely fair. You know, it's that idea of kai guang and purifying and consecration, and it's on multiple levels. So there's also a very strong presumption that the practitioner should be purifying the self as well. So you need to consecrate yourself on many different levels before you, you know, approach spirit. And that's just a form of of reverence. And it's also to attune yourself more strongly to the resonance of spirit. So that's a very important principle in Taoist mysticism is consecration. Yeah. And I've, I've heard it from certain Taoist uh, or Qigong practitioners that they, they, they undergo a very strict regimen of meditation and, and taking care of what they eat and managing their stress levels simply because if they're if if they're working on someone else's chi, how, their chi needs to be as as good as they can get it. You know? <laughs> um, so I, perhaps a, a similar sort of corollary there. But um, I, I've seen on your social media that you really enjoy cooking. <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, it's got to be a cultural thing thing as well. Um, and same for me. But I'm wondering how much uh, does that play into your, um, I guess. Uh, spiritual pursuits uh, uh, on a on a holistic level. Um, I know very much so that uh, the uh, the underlying philosophy behind uh, much of of Chinese medicine is to um, you have the proper balance of uh, of of hot and and cold and and these kind of temperatures. And even in the Wang Di Neijing, you know, they start out. He starts out by saying to eat seasonally. You yeah. know, um, and that kind of stuff. But also in terms of herbalism, you know, that, that's a huge tradition, decoctions and things like that. Do you incorporate any of that? Absolutely. But I don't see it as spiritual. Um, it's I just see it as practical. It's sort of like my lifestyle. I don't know how else to explain it. So um, we grow our own food, grow our own fruits and vegetables. I would like to raise chickens, but we currently have zoning and code issues. <laughs> so I can't grow, can't raise chickens here. But I, you know, I really try very hard to grow my own foods. And when it's all organic, even the way I approach it, you know, I, this is going to sound crazy. I talk to my trees, I talk to my plants. Um, I'm really thoughtful about moon phases in terms of har- harvesting and sowing. And then when you, when you, you know, receive the fruits from the trees or when you harvest the, when you have to cut the leaves from the plants, there's a ritualized way to do that, to be honored, to, to, to be respectful and, and, and grateful for what you're receiving, how you cook, how you prepare, all of that is very important. Um, thinking, you know, positive thoughts, like when you say cook with love, I think it's a concept everybody knows intuitively. So I, I put it simply, I cook with love, you know, that's really how I, I would put it. And then understanding the body constitutions of who I'm cooking for. So that would be my husband and my father-in-law, myself as well. And we really are mindful of body constitution making sure they're not eating too much um, hot foods and I'm making sure I'm not eating too many, too much cold foods. So these are all things that I, I kind of think about, but I don't think about it as a spiritual practice. It's like, if you're wondering about how much protein you're eating, if you're worried about your <laughs> blood panel, is that your spiritual practice? You know, uh, if you're worried about nutritional, nutritional balance of your diet, I don't see that necessarily as a spiritual practice. Yeah. And I guess, I guess you're, you're the more lucky for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It, it's been definitely something that I've had to consciously pay attention to just because the um, it's, you know, it's not the system I grew up in uh, that kind of medicine, but um, yeah, I mean, that's a really important point. 
we can we can kind of get lost in in all the magic and the 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 fanciful talk of of chi but at the, the core of all of it you know this self-care as just lifestyle and and as a sort of respectful communal endeavor with your environment um yeah that definitely it, it i guess it includes and transcends uh the the, the purely uh spiritual absolutely that's that's a good point actually so um i'm i'm wondering is there a a place where anyone could pre-order the book uh that you have coming out or or is it going to be on on amazon will you be selling it from your websites or no i don't sell it directly um amazon i think any any place that you normally buy books you can buy it from penguin random house or north atlantic books directly if you'd like but yeah, any normal place you would go, hopefully it's at the local bookstore as well. So if it's not, go and request it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a couple of sort of stock questions that I ask everybody who comes on uh, the podcast. So uh, sometimes I, I give them a heads up because I know some people will choke. I didn't really get a chance to to give you a heads up on this one. No but worries. Let's have fun. <laughs> Yeah. So I like to ask people, how do you experience magic? I used to ask them, how do you define it? But I like to ask, how do you experience magic? How do I experience magic? I think for starters, at the, okay, I think it depends on what age you ask me this question. At this age where I am now, I don't characterize it as magic. Um, I characterize it as now it's just my reality. It's me understanding there is an unseen counterpart to the thing that I can physically experience. And um, it's connected to my reality. And so um, being cognizant that there are um, other forms of beings around me other than what we use, like humans, animals, whatnot. There are other forms of beings around us. Um, that are the way they are for various reasons. They were born from a different realm or, you know, it's a ghost, right? It, it was some, it's a, a deceased person. Um, so these are all things that I just kind of um, am mindful of. And so that's my, that's my magical practice, I think, you know, is just um, being mindful that there's a lot more than what we say we know and what the scientific experts of our world say we know. And I'm just mindful of that. But I don't expect anybody else to believe me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's <clears throat> I think it's it's very important that people such as yourself and and some of the other people that I've had on the podcast continue to operate in the milieu in, in which you currently do, because there was a period where it was kind of arid in terms of the literature that was coming out. And, it, you know, um, it was a lot of heart and not as much head, not, not as much, um, you know, I guess grounding in uh, the, the research of traditions and things like that. But we've got a lot of that now but we don't have a ton of it from a practitioner standpoint. And yeah. And I think it's really important that um, we continue to use our voices to contribute uh, that perspective for other would be practitioners or, or, you know, people who are just looking for a venue to have an open mind and, and not feel silly 
you know, about it? It's very hard, you know, because I think when you go about it in a very um, folk religious way that does not feel any necessity to ground it in rationalism, um, you have a community for that, right? You have a community that will embrace you for that. And if you approach it purely as an academic exercise, purely in terms of scholarship that follows the conventions of academia, there's also a community for that as well. But if you try to bridge that gap, you're going to get flack from both sides and suddenly you are without community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's a big motivating factor for, um, for me wanting to do this podcast is not only to share my perspective, but to, to get people like yourself, um, a platform because I really do view from what I know of both of them, which is probably paltry little, but that's fine <laughs> because I'm able to practically apply it. Right. Um, there are two sides of, of one coin, the, the more, Eastern conception and West. After all, it's it's one Earth, you know. Um, it's it's one humanity, and and there's been a, a lot of cross pollination. But I think that a lot of Western practitioners, people that are actually trying to to use this stuff, could very much benefit um, from all of your work. Uh, um, but for people who kind of feel lost in the weeds and maybe don't know where to have a starting point, didn't have the benefit of kind of wandering into an acupuncture school the way I did. Um, would you be able to list maybe three books or or uh, even from any kind of media, a uh, documentary series, a YouTube channel that you would recommend for people who uh, have listened to our conversation today and uh, want to know more? Wow. Um, you know, I feel so bad that I don't know any like I have recommendations for the advanced Taoist practitioner like what books do you read if you really want to deep dive into Taoist alchemy but like beginner level books in English I mean even in Chinese mm. I can't even recommend books in Chinese let alone books in English that's a really tough one I'm I don't know um, well, how about how about for the advanced practitioner? Because I'm I'm not technically advanced, but I want to get my hands on those books. So. Um, I think a great place to start is the Daozong, the Taoist Canons. It's it's not one book. Taoist Canons is kind of like what is it? Nag Hammadi's this idea of like the Dead Sea Scrolls is very similar. Like, what is the Taoist Canons? What's not? That's like up for debate among scholars. But basically, when you get into the realm of that portfolio of texts, you're going to find a lot of um, old traditions that have really been well-preserved, uh, as long as you don't find the forgeries, right? But really mm. well-preserved um, canons on ritual magic. Um, what you were saying, you asked the question, is there really a vibrant practice of ceremonial magic in Asia? Well, the Taoist canons will absolutely answer that question for you in the affirmative, a resounding yes, and show you exactly how meditative practices. So that's really important. I like um, what is it? Huangdi Ying Fujing, the Yellow Emperor's Yin, what is it? Um, Mysteries of the Hidden Talisman or something like that is how I think people translate it. But that's a really good one because it gives you the metaphysical framework for how to do ritual magic. And then it does give you a lot about like the, the sort of the, the mechanisms of ritual magic as well. So those are two really good texts to start. Yeah. And I think um, Tao of Craft had uh, a translation that you rendered of that, correct? 
a little, little piece of it. It's not so much a translation, but a summary. So I read through the whole text because it is dense reading material. Like you're not going to, if you read that straightforward, you might not pick up on the 13 points that are brought up unless you read and reread and read it. But this sort of core summary of the text is what I pulled out of it and put in the Tao of Craft. Excellent. So um, is there anything else that uh, that you've got going on that you uh, you might want to plug or, or alert people to? So right now, what I'm really interested in is that uh, YouTube channel that I have going, putting up a series of um, you know, videos on, those are beginner level videos. I try very hard to make it beginner level videos um, just that will introduce you to Taoist metaphysics and ritual magic. I mean, it's in the nascent stages of the series. So you see more principle oriented, but I do want to eventually get to more practical oriented aspects of beginner level Taoist magic. So that's why I would like to plug that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been a boon for me. Uh, I have to drive really far in the mornings to, and, and the evenings to, to and from work. Mm. Uh, so I just, I have plenty of time to just sit back and listen. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And it's been an excellent series. I mean, yeah, for beginner videos, there's some mind blowing stuff on there. Um, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, now, I guess a final question I have, cause it kind of popped into my head. Do you think that, and I know this is going to be very subjective to each practitioner, but do you think somebody like me who's very interested in, in Taoism and has some experience with uh, meridian theory and the philosophy, right? I read uh, Tao Te Ching many times, uh, starting when I was very young. I think it was like 15 when I read it. And um, do you think that there is any way for for a Westerner such as myself to really connect with with the traditions of Taoism and turn it into a uh, you know as beautiful and as deep uh, a tradition as as I know it can go. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I mean, I, you, you're right. It's a subject. I don't want to you know draw lines in the sand and people have their different perspectives. But for me, it, it's within the perspective of Taoism. So from the Taoist perspective, there is a gauntlet that you have to run in order to truly achieve understanding. And it doesn't matter who, what you look like, who you are, what your background is. And it is true, we do start, it's an un, unequal, unlevel playing field that we all begin on. That's called life. That's not just a race thing. That's not a culture thing, East versus West. I mean, socioeconomics, we all begin on different, we're not all privileged, right? And so right. no matter where you begin, where from that starting point, if you're willing to run the gauntlet and say, I don't care how unfair my, my place is, I'm willing to go forward and try to understand this, um, the gods will answer and you will absolutely be able to achieve understanding. Wonderful. That's extremely encouraging. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for having a conversation with me today. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to everything that you have going on right now. And uh, I hope to speak to you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye.